It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the August edition of Prospect hits the stands, we're putting the experts in the dock. And with most young people now engaged in higher education, what is the point of university if everybody's going to go? But no matter how many graduates we produce, it seems we just can't learn the lessons of the financial crisis. The system of cooperation in 2008 revolved around the age-old European-American central bank nexus. What happens when a crisis like this unfolds in Japan or, heaven forbid, in China? That's really the kind of the open question for the future. We'll school you in exactly what you need to know without, we hope, falling into any of those traps of the infamous experts. On the line we have our stellar panel of, well, yes, experts. I know, I know, but it's like who guards the guardians. How else are we meant to put those experts on trial? So down the line from the Hebrides, we've got the economist-cum-troublemaker Paul Ormorod, who is a partner at Volterra Partners Consultancy. Also here in London, we've got Professor Alison Wolfe, the Professor of Public Sector Management at King's College London. A little later on, we're going to be hearing from Adam Tooze, who's an economic historian at Columbia University in New York. But first of all, Alison, let's start with what at one time we might have thought of as the expert factory, the university question. Tony Blair wanted 50% of young people attending university. And I think we're now more or less there. First of all, I'd like you to just take a bit of a long view with us and explain how ambitious a target was that. It wasn't that ambitious if you provided the funding in the places, is the truthful answer. Because at the time that he actually announced that target, there were already a very large number of people in universities. It was well over a quarter. And therefore, the whole social system had tipped. You know, back in the 1950s, universities were irrelevant to most people. You made a career without it. You went by apprenticeship. You got a job after school, all the rest of it. By the time you get to the 1990s, you're becoming a very brave middle class young person if you've got good A-levels and you turn your nose up at university because you're getting to a point where the professions are getting graduate entry only, where more and more employers are saying, don't want to look at you unless you've got a degree. So everybody's already in a world where they know that getting a degree really matters. So at that point, the number of places was capped. So when Tony Blair uncapped them, or at least 
increase the numbers. There were plenty of willing takers queuing up because why wouldn't you? And so there were lots of takers, the money was there and you still don't seem terribly happy about Tony um, pulling off what he set out to do. He thought that by going up to 50%, he would make everybody richer. He thought that everybody who took a degree would get richer. He thought the economy would grow faster. And he thought that the 50% who were going to be left out would be fine because they would all get richer off the coattails of everybody else. In fact, the productivity policy of governments in this country for a long time, and and New Labour more than most, but not particularly uniquely, was educate, educate, educate. More and more people going through through both school and university, more and more qualifications. And by some magic process, this will translate into a hugely more productive economy. I was always unhappy about it because I always thought that it was very tough on the 50% who didn't go because more and more doors would slam in their face. I think I was less pessimistic than I should have been about the economic effects. I I never thought it was going to be this magic bullet, but I must admit I didn't foresee quite the productivity plunge and the dramatic loss of real income that we've been having of late. Yes, so um, it hasn't turned out that prettily when you think about it purely uh, from the economic point of view. Let me just bring in Paul Ormerod. Paul, you are an economist, so I suppose you would want to think about things from the economic point of view. And yet, Alison makes the point in her essay that if we go just a little further back in history, the argument for universities was quite different. It used to be about knowledge for its own sake and um, character. Well, yeah, I suppose in a, in a sense, like, like many caricatures, it contains you know, a substantial grain of truth. Uh, but things have now, you know, as Alison was saying, have changed you know, absolutely and completely when you have 45 to 50% of an age group going to uh, universities, the whole experience is, is changed. And it's certainly changed, not just from the point of view of teaching the students, uh, but, but from the perspective of what uh, purports to pass as research. Now, even if you're in a, a university, you know, at the bottom of the league tables, you know, you're still, there's still some expectation that you'll deliver research. And what we've seen is a massive increase in supply of research papers and journals and journal articles, which essentially have very little value at all. And that, that's been a consequence of the expansion of the university sector. It's really led to a massive explosion in the number of academic papers, uh, most of which, to be honest, are not really worth the paper they're written on. I'm a bit less negative than Paul, I must admit, about the whole way in which academics do and don't critique each other's work. I mean, I, I, I do think that in spite of everything, universities have continued to increase our stock of knowledge and understanding and not just in the sciences. But I think there's absolutely no question that this sort of massification has been very problematic because everybody is expected to be a university like they used to be in the 1950s and 1960s and academic careers are made in that way. In fact, it's, 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 it's even more research driven. But the real problem, I think, is that teaching is intrinsically very expensive. And when you start sending a huge proportion of your population through higher education, you simply can't do the kind of 
small group or tutorial-based teaching that used to be really quite uniform. It wasn't just an Oxbridge thing. It was what you experienced anywhere. And that's just not possible. And the combination of the, the, the huge numbers and the fact that at various points, the, the amount of money per student really plummeted. I mean, in the 1990s, it was it was really bad. But the combination of the fact that they're less generously funded than they were in the golden days of the sort of the late 50s and 1960s, plus the, the pressure on academics, plus I have to say the fact that quite a lot of the students are also perfectly understandably not there because they're utterly fascinated by the subject they are studying but you know they would like their minds stretched but but essentially this is a sort of an economic bargain from their point of view as well and the problem is you end up with a great deal of big class large lecture teaching because that's how you make the the sums balance and it's not obvious to me that that this is a very efficient way of doing anything you know sometimes it amazes me that people learn as much as they do in universities politicians keep hanging on to this belief that if we only did it a bit differently it would be magic you know that somehow there's some technological solution which would mean that we could have a fantastic impact on the the learning and the brains of every student who comes past our door much more cheaply than ever before and we we just need to learn to do it differently but the reality is that human beings learn in quite particular ways they learn from other human beings they learn by getting a lot of very direct and quite complicated feedback and that costs an awful lot of money paul in my view i think a lot of students quite honestly have been conned because there was all this thing about you know the graduate premium about how much extra you would earn if you had a degree Now, let's say 10% of the age group are going to university. That's almost certainly true. Uh, But if you increase the supply massively, uh, then you erode that premium. And as we can see that uh, for for many people, for many young people, um, it's really just not worth it going to university and taking on these debts. Um, It's simply not worth it from an economic point of view. They'd be much better off uh, getting a job. And uh, of course, one of the points Alison makes is that the type of jobs uh, that you now need a degree for are rather different from in the past. So you might need one to work in what she calls, I think, the, the back office in accounts. And as a result, the earnings of these graduates are very different. Was it, Alison, £120,000 after just five years for LSE economics graduates compared to something below the average wage, I think it was, for, for people at the University of Central Lancashire? Um, yes, well, it is. And, and the reality is that if you come out into the labour market of Central Lancashire, um, you're facing a very different sort of labour market from the one that today's Oxbridge or top you know, university graduates face, or than any graduate faced when there were only 5 or 10% of the population going into the graduate labour market. You know, if we put everybody through university, there will be no financial returns to a degree at all because there'll be nobody to earn more than. <laughs> Let's just switch for a minute to um, why this is blowing up. There's a real feeling um, that the... English, uh, Scottish are different, they've got free universities, but the English, Alison, until very recently, maybe until a month or two ago, thought that they got this problem licked. They thought they knew how at least to pay for university. And now that looks a bit less certain. It, it does. I mean, I have to say, not all of us thought it was fixed. <laughs> Once we got to the level of loan that we've been at and looked at what was piling up in terms of unpaid 
loans in the future, which were going to come back to the taxpayer. Some of us have been a bit convinced for a while that this was not as stable as others thought it was. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at what the the government was saying in the spring when the Higher Education Act was going through, yeah, they thought they'd got it licked. They thought they knew exactly what they were doing. They thought more and more graduates would be great. And this would go on generating returns. And so what was the problem? And why shouldn't people have loans because after all you don't pay them back until you do earn a certain amount and yes it did indeed blow up and and my sense is it blew up for a, for a variety of reasons i mean the, the the obvious thing is that labor offered to 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 stop fees and now i mean i actually think that's very regressive if you look at um scotland where they don't charge upfront fees of any sort or by loan by loans or otherwise to their to scottish students i mean they've paid for it in a variety of ways and they've underfunded further education even more grossly than we have maintenance loans are still there it's so so i think it was a very non-progressive promise but obviously it was a fantastically attractive one to a generation which has actually got lower earnings than 10 years ago which feels cut out of the housing market ignored i mean all of these things make it hugely attractive and i would not have guessed it would blow up suddenly but things that are going to blow up have a habit of doing it suddenly and not when you're expecting them okay let's just stop for a moment we've spoken an awful lot now about the teaching side of universities but there's another side too the research um you're um really quite down on a lot of the way that the experts present themselves in the in the public discourse um before we turn to the substance of the quality of the research, let's just talk about that. You and your co-author Helen Jackson are worried about the way that um, experts talk down, as it were, I think, to mere mortals. Well, I think that's become a, a feature of, uh, of public discourse on policy, that somebody cites a paper in an academic journal, or if you're trying to participate in a debate... People are trying to give the impression that unless you're in some way completely familiar with the latest academic publications, you're, you're not worthy to participate in that discussion. It's not valid for you to participate in it. And we could see it very clear, for example, in the Brexit campaign last year, when you know at least 90%, probably more than 90% of economists in British universities uh, were against Brexit. And so we saw... Um, if you like, a vilification, an exclusion of the people who wanted to vote leave, um, even though you know there were perfectly respectable arguments on both sides, if you're actually trying to look at it objectively, people were, 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 are being excluded from the debate um, because they're not simply uh, familiar with the latest uh, academic study. Alison, you, I mean, Paul's an <laughs> academic expert as well, but, but you, you certainly are. You write about universities in a university. Do you think there's any fairness in this charge, this charge about tone? So I think it's not a specifically academic or university problem. I mean, it seems to be exactly the same phenomenon as any closed shop anywhere in the world. But I, but I do agree. And I do agree with him about the, the, the tone that experts can use. And again, I don't think it's just university experts. They can be like that. And it's very, very well, infuriating is a polite way of describing it if you're, if you're one of the people who feels they're being talked down to for no good reason. One of the things that I don't agree with Paul about is that I, I think he is extremely suspicious of the quality of a very, very large amount of research, including in the social sciences. I'm probably a bit less 
condemnatory. But I, th- I think the expert tone is, is, is a genuine issue. It doesn't follow that being an expert is irrelevant. You know, sometimes you do actually just know more about something. And, you know, you would kind of like an engineer to build a bridge. And, and on the whole, I would prefer that our central banks were staffed by people who knew some economics. Um, Paul, do you want to just um, hit back on that one? Let's take uh, there's a uh, experimental psychology. Um, now, this is often used in policy debate. There's a lot of PR, PR releases from university press departments about findings here. Then there was an article in Science, which is probably uh, the top academic journal in the world. Um, this was the end of 2015. And 270 experimental psychologists agreed to get together to try to replicate the results of a hundred well-cited articles in experimental psychology that had been published in the top journals of experimental psychology. And these were the original authors. So it should have been straightforward to actually replicate these results. Yet in two thirds of the cases, they couldn't be replicated at all. They got completely different results when they attempted to replicate them. In, in a, a remaining half of the, of the, of the other third, uh, they got similar results, but much weaker ones. And so the authors concluded that actually they did not know in any of these cases, apart from the small number where it was replicated, um, what was true and what was wrong. Was the original experiment correct? Was the replication, attempted replication correct, which got different findings, or were neither correct? So here's an entire discipline, an entire academic discipline, which seems to have uh, no empirical foundations whatsoever. To me, what it underlines is that anything that involves human beings is extraordinarily difficult to study in an extremely rigorous fashion, because there are so many variables. Human beings respond to what they think is going on. Um, so replicability in anything that involves human beings is, is the worst of, of, of it's, they, they don't behave nicely like chemicals in a Petri dish do. Um, and I do think we understand things about humans and how they operate and how they operate in groups, which we didn't 100 years ago. So I don't think it's a completely flaky subject. But where I do agree with Paul is that the refereeing process is not as reliable as people might like to think and I personally think it's getting worse because you're right you get no credit for it it depends entirely on first of all people who actually know anything about the subject agreeing to referee it and my worst experiences have been when you have referees who agree to referee an article and clearly don't have a clue about the subject uh, so that's a defense of experts too I guess but but people are very hard worked and they don't get credit for refereeing and so it's entirely due if you like to a sort of an internalized ethical sense whether you do it properly and sometimes people do it amazingly thoroughly so you know I was a fellow referee the other day on an article which I think was actually quite important and the article the the editor sent round the referees comments to the other referees after it was all over and I thought I'd done quite a decent job but my fellow referees there were two others said I mean they must have spent days on it on the other end of it you can quite often have things where people would just give you two or three lines and the editor has obviously been so desperate to get anybody to do it that that he or she has gone along with that so I think it is a somewhat 
unreliable and increasingly unreliable process. And I absolutely accept the importance of, I think, all disciplines involving human beings, understanding the importance of, first of all, large samples and second, trying to replicate. But the trouble is, what, what else? What else can you do? Now, one of the very many occasions where the experts have been in trouble recently was in their failure to spot the financial crisis coming. So I'm delighted that joining us on the line now is Adam Toos. Adam, the story of bankers wrapping up debts in fancy packaging and then playing pass the parcel bomb has been told many times. But Adam, you think there's something very fundamental about the way the crisis spread around the world that perhaps we haven't got our heads round yet. So please enlighten us, first of all, on what exactly it was that wrecked Northern Rock 10 summers ago. Well, I think the, the crucial issue that really we're still struggling to get to grips with as a practical matter as well as a matter of history is not so much what the money was lent for, the story of real estate and mortgages and so on, but how that lending operation was funded and specifically the transnational quality of this of this funding operation. Banks from the 1990s onwards began to operate in an unprecedented way by borrowing from each other, from so-called money markets, huge quantities of money, trillions of dollars, and lots of it was in dollars on a very short-term basis, and ploughing that borrowing into various types of higher-return, long-term investment. And it's the implications of that modern market-based model of banking that really are the undigested legacy of the crisis or the the legacy that we're still in the process of coming to terms with that has implications for how we regulate the banks that's what the new basel three basel the prospective basel four mechanism is about it's trying to discipline that but it also has implications for how central banks relate to each other because so much of this funding is in foreign currencies. well let's just pause and and and, and talk about that because you've you've already given us your sense of uh, why we didn't diagnose, if you like, the crisis rightly or the cause of the crisis rightly. But you also think that a lot of people haven't quite got their heads around how the authorities fixed it. We've probably all heard of bank bailouts. I guess certainly heard of bank bailouts. And we've probably heard of quantitative easing too. But you're saying there was another big trick that we uh, maybe missed. Yes, the, 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 the crucial third element, if you like, after taking bad assets off banks' balance sheets and recapitalizing them and then giving them liquidity. In other words, uh, allowing them to trade in long-term commitments for short-term cash, access to to liquid cash. The third crucial element is this issue of access to dollars um, because the real tension in the global banking system, not in the United States banking system or, say, the Greek banking system when Greek sovereign debt was going down, The tension in the global banking system in 2008 and after was to do with currency mismatch. In other words, banks which had one side of their balance sheet heavy in dollars and another side that was light in dollars. And that is where central bank intervention was quite crucial because what they did was to provide mechanisms to ensure that all of the banks in the global financial economy could gain access to the one currency that they were all short of, which is dollars. In any discussion of the financial crisis, a very obvious question for the layperson is, um, well, yeah, have we fixed it in a way that means it's going to happen again? And I did wonder, reading your piece, Adam, 
whether this kind of decision to just turn on the tap where dollars are concerned and to thereby to allow banks elsewhere in the world to keep borrowing in, in, in dollars, is that not just a license for the banks to go on doing what they were doing in the first place and therefore to potentially recreate the crisis? Well, it certainly hasn't been a major rethink. I mean, the strategy that was adopted was, if you like, to, amongst the central banks, organise a network suitable to backing up the transnational border crossing activity of the private sector. So what the central banks did was to create a kind of lending club amongst themselves, amongst the privileged inside group. This is the Fed, the Bank of England, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, the Swiss National Bank, the really heavy hitters in the global system. What they did, if you like, was to build a scaffolding around the tottering structure of the private sector banking system so that on the outside, a bit as you imagine, like the Pompidou Centre or something like that, the plumbing runs around the outside of a wobbly private banking system. And so rather than trying to defuse to to make the private system less complicated, less fragile, less dependent on foreign currency, what they did was to say, no, no, we can do one better. We can provide the public sector mechanism that will enable that to go on. So it was certainly a decision, not if you like to back down, not fundamentally to defuse, uh, to break up, to make the uh, banking system smaller, not in the first instance anyway, but to provide a public underpinning for that kind of private speculation. Now, in the details of banking regulation on both sides of the Atlantic, in the really inside wrestling match that's going on in the negotiations over Basel Bank regulation, moves are afoot to pull the banking system to a degree apart. But the primary impetus, as you say, was in, in effect a kind of arms race, a kind of ramping up of central bank coordination to match the enormous scale of private entanglement. And that does indeed obviously bear the risk. It does include the risk of of further crises on an even larger scale and in places which aren't perhaps at the heart of of this system of cooperation. The system of cooperation in 2008 revolved around the age-old European-American central bank nexus, which goes back to the early 20th century, what happens when a crisis like this unfolds in Japan or, heaven forbid, in China, that's really the kind of the open question for the future. Alison, what do you make of this idea that the central banks, the US Federal Reserve in particular, have very quietly indeed globalised the world's monetary system? It sounds to me like a rather fraught thing uh, for anyone to try and do in in, in nationalist times. The central banks and their ability to collaborate with each other is terrifyingly important to our world and if they get it wrong it will all go so badly wrong so I suppose my my sense is that I was fascinated by it don't feel in the least able to say yes or no but do completely recognize the centrality of the central banks to everything that's going on around us and you know kind of pray every morning that they'll continue to be competent (laughs) <laughs> an angel watching uh, over the Fed, as Adam puts it. But can I just push you? Do you think they will be able to keep up with that level of cooperation? I think that would depend. Um, when, um, when, you know, we got Trump in the White well, House. I think Adam can talk about this far better than, than I can because he, he does. But it seems to me that they are only able to do it ultimately if the political climate is correct and if the political sport is there. Because I think they can do it if 
they are operating within a political environment that's fairly stable and understands the importance of it. That's a huge if, and I don't think I would put very much money on that if. Uh, Paul, um, Adam emphasises um, international cooperation time and again in averting crisis. He talks about a time when Washington and Beijing had to speak to each other in order to make sure that Beijing wasn't going to dump all its treasury bills. Um, he also talks about this business with the, with the central banks. All of it, it seems, in keeping the global financial system on the road, all of it comes down to global powers cooperating. That's looking a bit more difficult at the moment, isn't it? Well, if you look at it uh, from, and this is one, one area of, um, if you like, economics, where which does have some insights, you look from a game theoretic point of view. I mean, the fact, no, no, uh, 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 even once the Chinese have accumulated, um, all the assets of the American government, you know, in a sense, they they were stuck with it. I mean, they can't, they can hardly liquidate it without destroying their own wealth. So the Americans, in a sense, have uh, uh, have got them over over a barrel. If I could just go back slightly and talk about, you know, the, the general role of central banks in the crisis, which obviously was crucial. People don't necessarily appreciate there was a massive difference between the global financial crisis of the late 2000s and that of the 1930s, when there was a catastrophic falling output, absolutely catastrophic, and we were rescued from that, but not by economists. Because going back to the theme of the experts, so then Jean-Claude Trichet, who was the governor of the, uh, Euro- of the European Central Bank during the crisis, made a statement and said he found that the models which were available to him uh, were of absolutely no use at all, not just in not predicting the crisis, but in trying to explain what was happening as the crisis unfolded. Uh, and quite simply, Bernanke in the US, who um, uh, fortunately was an expert in the Great Depression from an economic historian's point of view, I think looked at what happened in the 1930s and said, well, we don't really know what to do now, except let's not do what they did. And let's have some expansionary monetary policy. Let's try and promote global cooperation. And they seem to model through uh, using these rules of thumb rather than the very sophisticated mathematical models which mainstream economics puts forward. So uh, if it wasn't the economists who saved us, uh, the, the experts um, back in the 30s in, in rebuilding the world after that great crash, who was it? Well, in the 1930s at the time, I mean, people forget, say, well, Keynes came forward with the solution, uh, but he didn't write his book until 1936. And the, the crisis took place between 1929 and essentially uh, 1933. Uh, and by 1936, uh, the world economy was on a strong recovery path. So, in a sense, he was calling a solution, you know, after the event that they modelled through finally and confidence was restored. He was describing it. I think Keynes's um, insights uh, were really quite, quite profound and, and relevant today. But it wasn't solved by that. What, I mean, the big mistake that people made in the, in the recession of the 1930s was to tighten monetary policy. And of course, with quantitative easing, we've had completely the opposite, uh, which gives us a fresh headache in terms of how do central banks manage to tone that down when you've had so much quantitative easing, which was essentially a way of uh, recapitalising the banks, giving banks free money, to be blunt. Uh, But you didn't dare say that to the electorates because you might have felt rather offended. 
So, Adam, international cooperation in a nationalist world, not necessarily an easy thing to do. And reading your story, what comes through is that the way that the central banks have chosen to do it is by being extremely quiet about it. Indeed, yes. I think they, rather than adopting an offensive, if you like, political strategy of justifying what they were doing in terms of the essential uh, prerequisites to the survival of the global financial system, I think they probably felt that the publics, both in Europe and the United States, had had enough on their plate with the bank bailouts and really the idea that the American central bank was going to provide massive amounts of liquidity to European banks was more than anyone could stomach. And furthermore, I think they were worried about financial markets. We don't just need to worry about, if you like, the panic of the populace, the panic of of the street. We need to think also about sentiment in financial markets, which are every bit as labile and uh, irrational, if you like, as uh, the democratic uh, populace. For all of those reasons, I think they decided to adopt this very defensive strategy. The question, of course, is, is whether that's viable in the long run or whether we need something much more like the kind of conferences that we saw in the 1940s at the end of World War II, where the reordering of the global financial and monetary system was a highly public affair. I mean, of course, it was expert and technical and difficult, but it certainly wasn't the matter of discrete meetings amongst uh, technicians that really didn't need to attract any publicity at all. It was a matter of the public knowledge and indeed, in some senses, pride, right? These were symbols of a new world to come. They were went alongside the formation of the United Nations. And what is really telling about our current moment is that arguably the largest act of financial and monetary cooperation since World War II has had to go almost entirely unheralded and, and no one sees any benefit in publicizing it. It isn't, strictly speaking, secret and it'd be wrong to say that it is because the bankers are clever enough to know that that would get them into real trouble. But it doesn't have any political purchase. And and it may indeed uh, produce antagonism. And it certainly will, I think, unless people are willing to provide a, a political uh, defense of it as a, as a necessity. They, they are running a, a serious political risk in the, in the line that they've pursued. Final question. Is there any alternative? You know, there are la- the, the, the Federal Reserve may lose this argument if it tries to go public and says, yeah, yeah, we've got to give the rest of the world all the dollars it likes. If they don't go down that route, is there some other policy they could pursue that would avoid complete chaos? And in the short run, it is the comfort blanket of everyone involved in central banking uh, around the world. Uh, the one, if you, if you listen to the inside conversations uh, of the people involved with this, the one saving grace of the crisis of 2008 was that the swap lines were put in place and have now become a permanent feature of global economic governance. And how one would, as it were, find a substitute for that, I think is really is really a, a totally open question. It's not obvious that, that there is any answer. The only, the only obvious solution would be for the major central banks to build up unprecedentedly large foreign currency reserves of their own. So, you know, you, you would need reserves on the scale that the Chinese have um, for the Eurozone, for Britain, for Switzerland. And that's hugely inefficient. I mean, it's so much more uh, efficient to have a contingent open access to, to dollars rather than having to permanently hoard them, which is what the Asian central banks have done. So that, I think, is the only alternative that's currently available, and it's very unattractive. That's it for Headspace for this month. And of course, huge thanks to Adam, to Alison and to Paul for making big efforts to join me. 
the August edition of Prospect Magazine, which is in the shops from July the 20th, features all their full essays and more besides, including Martha Gill on how backbench MPs have learnt to think for themselves and Jay Elwes on how Guns N' Roses killed rock and roll. You can pick it up in the shops, but even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye, and thanks very much for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.